All right, good morning. If you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 9. A couple things going on this week. Um, Last uh, chance to get tickets for the Source event this Saturday. Um, It'll be at 7 o'clock, and uh, this is where we have our live painter coming in from New Jersey, uh, and he's going to obviously do a live painting. We've got worship and and everything, and hopefully you guys can come if you... If you can't, please lift it up in prayer. It's kind of a, it's, there's a lot involved, and, um, and uh, we're not, well, I'm not real good at coordinating things, so hopefully somebody else is, and it goes off without a hitch. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts on the stage and everything, and, and I get a little nervous about that. So just pray for it or show up. Either way, we'd love to have you. Um, it'll be at the Mary Lynn uh, on campus and invite some friends. Uh, then also the next, the following day, Saturday at 2 o'clock, um, is our life chain. It's nationwide. Um, I believe there's 1,500 of them all over the nation. Um, we started, uh, our family started 23 years ago, um, or 20, actually 24 years, 20, yeah, 25 years ago we started doing life chain. Um, we've been doing it ever since, and so we're, we kind of headed up. I didn't do very good this year uh, as far as my responsibilities go, a lot going on, um, but It'll be this Sunday at 2 o'clock. We meet at the courthouse uh, about 1.45, a little bit early, so we can hand out signs, pray. Um, and then it's just a silent time um, of standing, not blocking anybody's traffic, not blocking driveways, not blocking pedestrian traffic, but you stand there in silent prayer um, for uh, the murder of the unborn in our country. And so it's just one hour, 2 to 3 o'clock. Um, so if you can be there for that, that'd be great. We've postponed our, or we've uh, rearranged our potlucks so that we can, you know, if you can come, it'd be great to have you. Otherwise, that'll be the, the following week. So that's next Sunday. All right, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Last week, um, we went over Revelation 4 a little bit because that's the actual uh, thing that the temple and that the tabernacle was representing. Um, The people needed something to worship, a place to worship. It was hard for them to think abstractly. And so God gave them the temple and the priests and the utensils and everything. They couldn't make him, but they could make it look like heaven. And it was a model. And Moses was shown that at the top of the mountain. And he was told, make it just like the pattern that I showed you. And of course, Revelation 4, John, on the island of Patmos, Jesus takes him up to heaven to see that same pattern, that same actual pattern that the pattern was made after. And so um, um, we got to read that. And now in in the beginning of chapter 9 here, the first five verses, they kind of go over that a little bit, like I did last week, but we're going to rehash it here. But he begins to describe, remember you Hebrews, that you've been brought out of this because that was then and this is now. And that was to show us what we have now. And now that we have this now, we don't need that anymore. And it was trying to show them that Christ has fulfilled all that. And uh, we have the actual now. We're in it. You know, no more pictures, no more types, no more models, no more patterns. Verse one, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, 
which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded in the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, and of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Not that they weren't supposed to, everybody kind of knew what it looked like, but only really one person a year would ever get to see that inside special room. That was the high priest, and he's going to go into that in great detail. What stuck out to me here in verse one, were verses 1 through 5 was the embroidered part of it. And the only reason I bring that up is because the embroidered part, no one would ever look at the embroidered part, the angels and stuff on there, and think that they were real. No one would ever look at those and say, wow, I can't believe I'm looking directly at a cherubim or a seraphim. And as representative as they were, so was everything else going on around them. And that's why I want to bring that up point. The Ark of the Covenant isn't something we should find and, and put behind bulletproof glass and secure because it's God's, you know, holy something or other. No, it was as real as those cherubim that were embroidered. It wasn't his actual chair. His actual chair is in heaven. His actual throne is in heaven. And so goes everything else from that point out. Everything else was just a model. And the writer here wants us to get that, wants the reader to get that, so we understand how important it is to embrace the real. And I, don't, I, I know I, I beat this horse often. I don't mean to, you know. But it's so important that as Christians, we don't fall into that same model mentality, even in our walk. We've never been to a temple. We've never had to offer up goats and lambs. We've never had a, a priest that, you know, well, maybe you did. You come out of that, hopefully. But you've never had to go through those things. You've never had that kind of uh, non-personal relationship with the Lord. But we can still turn our relationship with Christ because that's our tendency, the same tendency the Hebrews had to worship things and rituals. We as Christians, because we're human, have that same tendency to make this Christianity into rituals and things. And it's not. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. It's, it's got to be inward. It's got to be from the heart to his heart. It isn't something that's necessarily outward. We, we show fruit from that inward relationship with God outwardly. We show love, compassion, kindness, long-suffering, patience, joy. All those things come out of us, gifts of the Spirit, but those are because of our relationship with God. You can't, you can't make your relationship with God from those things. Those things come from your relationship with God. Okay. This, re- this writer here is trying to get that across to these guys. You can't go back. What you have is Christ in you. You have the mind of Christ. You have the spirit of Christ. He dwells in you. It's not a place you go to. It's not over there, over here. You don't pick him up. He's in you. And it was such a, a wonderful thing for them. So amazing to have that relationship with God now. And we've been discussing that on Wednesday nights too. How beautiful it is to walk in the spirit now to have that relationship with God all the time, constantly. I'm in the throne room anytime, all the time, that I want to be. I don't have to show up someplace. And of course, he explained that to the woman at the well. He explained that to her, that the woman neither here nor there. Eventually, it's the Spirit. We're, we're going to worship in spirit and truth. And so, he says that to them. These are, these are earthly sanctuaries. It was prepared. It, we described the lampstand being the seven spirits of God from Revelation 4, the table of showbread. And as all those individual utensils and pieces of furniture represented something, it also showed a process. 
Not only did they actually represent the spirits of God, the prayers of the saints offered up to God, uh, the showbread table with the 12 tribes of Israel, that outside you had the sin offering that was offered up on the, on the bronze altar out there, and before that you had the, the, the bowl uh, full of water that they would bathe in and, and get cleansed in. It's, it's also a picture of the process. You'd walk into this scene through the white curtains, into this tabernacle situation, and the water represents your birth. You're born. And when you're born, you realize you've got sin. You had to do something about it. So the sin is sacrificed there. And you walk into the Holy of Holies, and you're there, and you're there. But you've got this big blue curtain here. If you go outside during the daytime, you see that big blue curtain. That's what that represents. There was no access to God. All you could do was look at the blue curtain and, and pray. All you could do is look at the blue curtain and sense the, the power and the light of the Holy Spirit. All you could do is look at the blue curtain, but you could never get to him. He was blocked by this big blue curtain. And so the picture's there. But when Christ died and we sang the song on the cross, that big blue curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And now we have free access to him. No longer do we look at some blank sky saying, I don't know, I hope he's up there. You know, I don't know if he hears me or not. We don't have that relationship with him anymore. It was ripped from top to bottom. And it's open now. We freely and boldly, as the writer said earlier in, the, in a few chapters ago, we can boldly come to that throne of grace and mercy in time of need. There is no more sacrifice. There is nothing else that has to be done. It is available. We're in his presence now. And these folks were mending the curtain. They were stitching it back up. They were going back to the old. They were going back to the rituals, back to the things, back to when they didn't have access to God, back to when they had to do other things and had to wonder whether they were really saved or not. They had to go back. They didn't have to. They wanted to. But it was ripped, never to be mended again. They did mend it. But they shouldn't have. It was meant to be ripped it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a, a, a catastrophe. <laughs> it was a blessing. And so the writer's trying to bring them to that. Don't you understand? Don't you understand this was all just a model? Verse 6, Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. See, they would offer up their own sacrifices for the things they remember, but then there was always those, I don't know if I covered everything this year. I don't know if I remembered everything this year. And the high priest, that's what that lamb would offer up. This is for all the things you might have forgot about. The things done in ignorance. It was like a big blanket, you know, catch-all. And the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. Even with all those sacrifices, even with all those rules and regulations tried and attempted to be followed, that veil was solid and secure. It was never ripped. There was never access. Nobody could ever get past it. They still walked in, and there's the big blue curtain. And God was out of sight for them still. Still unable to stand in his presence without being evaporated. And the writer here is trying to take them to a place where they understand, don't you know what Christ has done? He's fulfilled everything we'd always hoped for. He's ripped that curtain. He's made a, given us access to him now. But we've always wanted to see his face. Everybody in the Old Testament, can I see your face? You can't see my face, but you can see my backside. Oh, man. 
Even Zacharias thought, we're going to die. I saw the face of God. No, you're not going to die, honey. You know? They were all worried about that, but they wanted to. It was symbolic, he says. I'm sorry, let's go. Yeah, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Nothing could ever handle, nothing could take away our conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until, until the time of Reformation. But Christ came. And I just wanted to put those three words in there so you understood. The time of reformation is, but Christ came. In other words, when they were so worried about foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, but Christ came. It's done. Thank goodness. The conscience thing. I love this. I don't love the fact that they could never clear their conscience. They could never get rid of their guilt. They could never purge themselves from uh, the fact that they had sinned. Reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. If you want to turn there, turn there. it's to your right, just a few pages. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, as Peter's explaining to them, he says this, there is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. And then he puts a parenthetical statement in there to make sure everybody understands the baptism that he's talking about because there are several in the Bible. The one he's talking about here is this, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. What they couldn't accomplish in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, was they could never give them a good conscience. They always were reminded of their guilt. They would always stand before God guilty. The barrier proved that. Every time the priest would go in, they'd look and say, We're still, we still don't have access. That means there's something wrong with me. And what Peter's trying to show us, no, 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 when Christ comes, he baptizes you and clears you of your conscience. You're guilt-free. It's as if you'd never sinned. You're absolutely purged. You're absolutely forgiven. Not just pardoned, but it's been sponged from your record. It's been taken off. It's like it never happened. The veil is ripped from top to bottom. He's given us a baptism of a clear conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into the heavens and is seated at the right hand, and the angels and the authorities and powers have made, been made subject to him. It's a beautiful understanding and concept here for us to get. We are forgiven, guiltless. I don't feel that way sometimes. But God, exactly. That's right. You know what? Yay. It is yay. Verse 11. But Christ came, took care of it. He's the Reformation. As high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So important, once. Everything else was repetitive because it was just a a reminder. It was a constant play being acted out before everybody to see, this is what has to happen. This is what has to happen. And then when he did it, I mean, it's it. There's no encore. 
Christ doesn't get crucified over and over and over again. Do you understand how blasphemous that is? He doesn't have to rip the veil, go into the heavenly, seated at the right hand of the Father, and then every time we call upon him, he's got to come back down and be sacrificed again and crucified, sometimes in some locations, three times a day. Not to put too fine a point on it, but you can't do that. That's not acceptable. That's not biblical. That's not what God's word says. That's not the picture. What you're trying to institute by continually re-sacrificing Christ and putting him back on the cross every single time you come together to meet is you're ignoring what God's word has said. It's absolutely finished and completed once for all. You can't keep doing that. And the fact that you think you can is ridiculous. Believe me, Christ isn't being sacrificed three times a day at these locations. They just think he is, or they're trying to pretend that he is, but he's not. There is no more priesthood. We have one high priest, and it's been done, and he is seated, and that veil is ripped, never to be mended again. I don't have to go through any man ever again to have access to my Savior, to my God, ever again, never. It's been done. Once for all, once for all, it's been done. For the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. And the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead, works to serve the living God. If that all, all that other stuff worked, can you imagine what the real thing did? And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is important. We're talking about wills now. There's a testament which is only enforced once the person dies. That's what a will is. I have a will. Well, we don't have a will. We want to get a will. We should have a will with all these kids. I know. I know. We feel like we need to get that. And most of you probably do have wills. But none of those things are in force until you die. And that's what the writer's trying to get across here, slowly taking us up to that. Don't you know there's an inheritance? Don't you know that there's a will? That all these things will be given to you? Well, but we got to wait till. Jesus dies. But once he does, that will is in force, and then you have an executor of the estate, and he begins to distribute. And that's happened. That's happened. It says in verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also uh, of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has power and has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with uh, blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, Almost all things are purified with blood, and without 
shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It had to happen. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. That's to your left there. Right where we left it, right? Matthew chapter 26. Beginning in verse 28. They're having the last supper here, the last dinner. Uh, Let's start in verse 27. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. We just read about the blood for the old covenant, right? The blood of bulls and goats and all that. Now he's changing it. This lamb that was sacrificed back in Egypt that we memorialize and have once a year, um, when we sacrifice and we eat of this lamb, we were reminded of how God took us out and led us out of Egypt. He's changing that. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now uh, on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The whole point of that, I just wanted to bring that out, was when he sat down and had that meal with them, he took this cup and says, no, 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 it's new now. It's no longer the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. It's now my blood that's going to ratify this new commandment, this new testament that I'm giving you. And when I die, that, as the testator, that will will become enforced. This is my signature. This is my blood oath. This is my promise. This is my stamp of approval. This is my thumbprint. This blood. And that's why we have communion. That's why we celebrate that. See, they would offer up sacrifices and blood to remind them of their guilt. Communion is something completely different. When we have that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice, that's to remind us of our forgiveness. It's not to remind us of our guilt. Some people make it that way. You can't make communion a time of guilt. That's so wrong. That's so contrary to what... That's people that are stuck in the old and they think that that's what they have to do. It's time to beat yourselves up, everybody. Once a month, we condemn ourselves and make ourselves feel horrible because we're worthless slobs. Don't forget it. It's not what it's for. It's to remind us of what Christ has done, that we're forgiven, that we're the beneficiaries, the inheritors of this great inheritance that once he died on the cross, it was given to us. We're not waiting for it anymore. We've been given all things in Christ. We've given the mind of Christ. So awesome. So beautiful. Communion should never be that time of guilt. It should be always a time of reminder and remembrance of forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. Therefore, verse 23, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made uh, with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to have had suffered often since the foundations of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, 
to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He's going to bring us home. Christ is a constant reminder of our forgiveness. He never is to be offered up as a sacrifice again. It was once for all. He's fulfilled everything, everything the model was ever set up to do. He's the real. Why go back to the old? Why go back to the former? Why go back to the representative when you have the person himself, the relationship itself? It's a better relationship. It's a better covenant. It's a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. We have a more assurance than anything that old covenant could ever have offered us. And we need to stay there and be careful that we don't get drawn away from that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that this writer felt it so, was so impressed upon his heart by you to write this because he saw the struggles that these folks were going to go through, the burdens, the bondage that they were going to put upon themselves, that they were set free from, never to be in bondage again, never to be shackled again to their guilt and their shame, but they could be completely released and forgiven. God, our holiness that we desire depends upon our understanding of your forgiveness, your grace, and your mercy. If we ever want to be obedient to you, it has to come from the inheritance that we've already received, the salvation that is sure. Lord, our heart, God, is to keep this in our hearts, to have this thought, to never get away from this idea in any way, shape, or form. We know there's some certain systems that are set up to pull us away from you and bring us back to the old, but God, we can do that on our own in any congregation. God, help us not to do that. Help us to just absolutely bathe ourselves in your grace and your mercy and to immerse ourselves in that and to understand how awesome and wonderful that is to be a child of yours, not a legal contract with you, but a child, a relative, an uh, an adopted son or daughter. We thank you for being that good father that you are. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.